The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So it's um, a real honor to be here, and it's no small thing that you're taking time out of your evening to be here and to listen to something that I have to share, which I hope is helpful. So um, as I mentioned, uh, the topic uh, that I'm going to be discussing tonight is concentration. And uh, I'm going to offer some uh, reflections with the idea that I'm focusing on what is practical, what is pragmatic. So it's very easy in this topic to kind of get very heady and to not actually embody it or to stay in the practice of it. So that will be my challenge tonight, which is to stay in that embodied sense of this word concentration. And just to say that this is a huge topic, so I will be giving you just a thumbnail sketch. But I think that it's something, at least that I found in my own practice, that is extremely important. And it's important to have... Uh, an understanding of how this uh, quality that we call concentration or this state of mind fits within uh, the Buddhist teachings and how it actually fits into practice and how does it support our practice. So with that, I'm going to start just with a little bit of context about where concentration shows up. So within the Buddhist teachings, concentration shows up in a number of lists. So it shows up in the Eightfold Path, which is that basic part of the Four Noble Truths. It's one of the path factors, concentration. It also shows up in what are called the Five Powers or the Five Faculties. It's another one of the kind of core lists. And then another area that it shows up is the seven factors of awakening. Those factors which, when they come into balance, incline the mind towards awakening, towards opening, towards a deeper understanding of reality. So it's no small thing that concentration shows up in some of these pretty um, important lists within the Buddhist teaching. And I want to start just by defining some terms. So... I'm using the word concentration. The Pali word, which is just the language of the Buddha, the language, uh, kind of the vernacular, uh, is samadhi. And so samadhi, uh, its origin, actually, it comes from two parts. Sam means together. And da means to put. So samadhi is to put things together, to put together. That's what the word literally means. And when I encountered this word concentration, I had um, all sorts of associations with it. What that meant, what my experience was of concentration prior to coming to any sort of meditation practice. And I'm going to ask you in a moment, actually, for a few words. But before I do that, I want to go back to some of the earliest texts to set the context, to give you some of what the Buddha, as far as we know, purportedly said about 
concentration. And there's two um, suttas that I'm going to be pulling from. The first one is what's called the Samadhi Sutta, which literally means the discourse on concentration. So that sounds like it's a pretty good source. And the other one is actually a sutta where the Buddha talks about a 12-part progression. And he's talking about this 12-part progression as what one can start to see in the development of concentration. That is a path, a path of practice that incorporates this concentration. So this is from the Samadhi Sutta, or the Discourse on Concentration. There are four developments of concentration. Which four? There is the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to a pleasant abiding in the here and now. There is the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to the attainment of knowledge and vision. There is the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to mindfulness and alertness. There is the development of concentration that when developed and pursued leads to the ending of the affluence. And those are just considered what are the classical things that bind us, those root places where we get stuck. And then the last part of this sutta, these are the four developments of concentration. And it was in connection with this that I stated to another practitioner, and then this is a quote, one who has fathomed the far and near in the world, for whom there is nothing perturbing in the world, this person, vices evaporated, undesiring, untroubled, at peace. This person, I tell you, has crossed over birth and aging. That's a pretty big claim. This person, I tell you, has crossed over birth and aging. So the Buddha was not shy about making that claim at the end of this discourse on concentration. So the other sutta that I want to just briefly reference, it's called the Greater Discourse at Asapura, or the Maha Asapura Sutta. And I'm just going to paraphrase this because this is a pretty long sutta. But it's in this sutta that the Buddha talked about a 12-part progression. And so this is how he described it. The very first stage was a sense of holding some concern and a sense of consciousness or, or um, um, conscientiousness, a sense of really holding concern for what is the view of those that are noble, those that are pursuing the practice or the path, and one's own inner compass. What is my own conscience? The classical phrasing of this is a little bit more direct. Sometimes it's referred to as holding a sense of shame and fear, <laughs> which I find is not particularly helpful because often shame and fear, particularly in our culture, are very loaded terms. So the way I like to refer to it is more concern and conscience. It's that sense of your own inner wisdom, your own inner compass, as well as the sense of, can I follow those that I believe to be wise? Those that when I listen, 
I hear what they're saying and I can feel the resonance of truth or the resonance of wisdom. So that's uh, how it's sometimes translated as well. So I wanted to give you both. But that's the first part. So the sense of conscience and concern. The next piece is uh, what's called bodily purity. So these are the acts that we do with our body and going through this process of purifying one's actions. So once we've purified our outer conduct, that is the way that we are in the world, how we are in the world, we then look to our speech. This is verbal purity, right? So this is purity of word. And we start to go through a similar purification process where we start to pay attention to the words that we're using, the effect that they have on others, and we incline towards that which is wholesome, that which is leading to wisdom, that which is leading to generosity, and that which is leading to loving kindness. And so we deliberately start to move away from those patterns or habits that are filled with ill will, with greed, or just a sense of ignorance or delusion, of not understanding cause and effect. So once we've moved from purifying our speech, we move into another subtle level, which is purifying the mind. This is mental purity. So we start to look at the mind states themselves. What is it that is habitually in our mind stream? And when I say mind, the word is chitta, and it often uh, it's translated as mind, but it means both mind and heart. And I think this is an important piece, because it's not only what's in our mind, but it's also how is our heart. And so we start to look at what is the state of our heart and mind. So this is the next part of this 12-part progression. And then once we've moved through mental purity, what starts to happen is we have a virtuous livelihood because we purified our actions with our body, we've purified our speech, and we've also purified our mental states and the states of our heart we start to live a more virtuous life. And it's a natural. It's almost, you can think of this as it's a lawful progression. The Buddha often talked about a lawfulness, that things have a certain cause and effect. And once it's set in motion, it's natural for it to unfold this way. So that's what he's speaking to here, where he says a virtuous livelihood. And then from a virtuous livelihood, we start to understand that if we develop some sense of the inner world, he called this guarding the senses, guarding the sense doors. So we actually deliberately start to take some of our attention away from that whirling external world and start to cultivate the inner life, the inner development. We start to guard the senses, bring some attention to what's happening internally, and do this in a very deliberate way for longer periods. Then we start to uncover a whole nother realm. And there's another interesting link that he puts after this, which I find fascinating, particularly in our uh, current age. The next progression is said moderation in eating. It's where actually when you start to cultivate this internal state, you've guarded the senses, then you start to realize, okay, how much do I need to consume in the world? Actually, it's a lot less than what I think. So it's interesting that he adds this piece in the progression about understanding moderation in eating. So once we understand moderation in eating, 
we start to understand what are the resources that we need to support our body and our mind, that naturally leads to a state of wakefulness. So we don't have that kind of lethargy that we get if we are consuming too much and uh, we're too caught up in the external world. There's a natural brightness that comes in, a wakefulness that shows up in our experience. So then from this wakefulness, mindfulness and full awareness are firmly established. So again, you can see kind of this progression, how the Buddha is moving through it. And then once mindfulness and full awareness are established, the five hindrances. So these are the hindrances that block progress on the path, that block the progress of one's deepening understanding, that those five hindrances are starting to be removed because mindfulness and full awareness are fully established so they understand these hindrances. And so for those of you that don't know the five hindrances, I'll give you a very short mnemonic. I've, I've done a talk on this before, but the five hindrances are basically covetousness of the world or sensual desire. So the mind moves out and grabs something. There's ill will or aversion where you're kind of trying to push an experience away, either judging yourself or judging another person. So the mind can kind of move back or a pushing away. There's a dropping down, which is sloth and torpor. So it's as though the mind is just sinking down into the spot and it can't get out, right? And then there's the opposite, which is restlessness and worry, where the mind kind of just can't stay put. It's constantly getting lost in a thought or a worry or a concern. And then right in the middle is doubt that wavers. It just shakes so the mind can't be settled. Settled. It's just not stable. So that's a very short mnemonic for the five hindrances. And so the Buddha is talking about they're starting to be removed because mindfulness and alertness is established. So then he talks about once the hindrances have been abandoned, he refers to something called the four jhanas. And jhana is another term which I will define. And it just means uh, absorption. or That's the way it's often described. The literal translation of it is uh, it means to meditate or to contemplate in a particular way. And it's this steadiness that can lead one's mind to be completely absorbed. So once the hindrances are gone, these four jhanas arise. And then this is the last interesting part. Once the jhanas have finished, you have realization of the three knowledges. And the three knowledges are those which are said, it's another description of what liberates the mind, what allows us to open to the entirety of reality. So this 12-part progression is really interesting as a way of starting to look at concentration and how do we start to develop this and how do we start to understand it in our practice. So I wanted to give you just that context from these two suttas and then I want to actually go into much more of a practical discussion of this because remember I said I want to keep this embodied. I don't want to get it too heady but I want to give you the original words because it's important to hear that. So the first thing is, as I said before, the term for concentration is samadhi, right? To put together. And 
we can do this actually right now. What are some words when you think about concentration? What is the experience of that in your practice? So just, you, we can do this kind of popcorn style. Just throw out a word. What's a word of that experience of concentration where you feel like you're concentrated? Focused. Thank you. Stillness. Thank you. Essence. Great. Thank you. Clarity. Yes. Thank you. Presence. Thank you. Coalesce. Yeah. Thank you. A few more. Reflection. I'm sorry. Where? I didn't see who. Right here. Thank you. Thank you. Settling. Yeah. Let's take one more. Second. Abide. Yes. So this is really important because you have an experience of this in your practice. So I don't want you to miss this, that concentration is not a rarefied state. It actually is immediately accessible. So it's easy to think about and to get into comparing mind. And I'll talk a little bit about that when we start to talk about concentration. But what I want you to first recognize is that in this room, we can hear all of these different descriptions of what the experience of concentration is, right? And so I wrote down a few, and I said uh, non-distractedness or undistractedness, steadiness, stabilized or stabilizing, or the absence of the hindrances. It's that natural state that arises when the mind isn't completely whipped up into a different state where it's lost in something. Concentration is that state that naturally arises. So just to begin to unpack this a little bit, just as you were hearing multiple definitions here in the room, I want you to think about concentration as a spectrum. It's not a single word. It's not a single point. So think about concentration as a spectrum. Okay. And I'm going to give you um, a couple of... uh, different definitions from some meditation masters uh, within our tradition about how they describe concentration. I want you to hear how each one is unique and slightly different. So you'll hear this spectrum in the description of concentration. But the one thing I want you to really listen for is that in, in all of these descriptions, No one ever says concentration is clamping down rigidly on the object and gritting my teeth until I get to some state, right? And I'm sharing that because in my own practice, I can remember this real energy of needing to get something. It's like I need to get concentrated rather than the natural arising of a state which has causes and conditions. It's lawful. When the conditions are there, it will arise. When the conditions are not there, it doesn't arise. So the first uh, definition comes from uh, Saida Upandita, who is a Burmese meditation master. And he was the teacher of my teacher, so Joseph Goldstein. Uh, and he also taught many of uh, the current Western Vipassana teachers. So this is what Saida Upandita has to say. Concentration is that factor of mind that pricks into an object, penetrates into the object, and stays there, drops into 
Okay, so that's one description of concentration. Notice how it's got a very active feel to it, right? It's like going right into the object. This one is from Upasaka Ki, who was uh, a female lay meditation master. And this is what she has to say about concentration. This is why we have to practice concentration, to make the mind quiet, to provide a foundation for our contemplation. For instance, you can focus on the breath or be aware of the mind as it focuses on the breath. Actually, when you focus on the breath, you're also aware of the mind. And again, the mind is what knows the breath. So you focus exclusively on the breath together with the mind. Don't think of anything else, and the mind will settle down and grow still. Once it attains stillness on this level, you've got your chance to contemplate. So another take on concentration. So this next one is on the opposite end of the spectrum. So if you think of that first definition as that kind of one-pointedness where you're getting very close and on one object, this next definition is much more of this open type of awareness that's not focused exclusively on an object. So this comes from Saida Utejaniya. The state of mind, which we call concentration, is very relaxed cool and calm. It is receptive and sensitive to whatever happens and can therefore know a lot more. So notice this is a very different flavor. It's as though that natural state of the mind that receives a whole range of experience, not just one object, but multiple objects. And then this last definition comes from Ajahn Neb, who also was a lay female um, meditation master in the Thai tradition. There are in Buddhism two methods of mental development. One is the development of insight, vipassana, and the other is the development of tranquility, samatha. And just to put a little footnote here, samatha is the practice. Samadhi or concentration is the state of mind that arises, right? So samatha are the practices and samadhi is actually the experience, the felt sense that I was asking you about. So there are these two types of practices, vipassana and samatha. And, and, and samatha. The latter aims only at concentration, whereby the individual is constantly conscious of one object and this concentration is directed along a single channel of one-pointedness until a serene tranquility is reached. So again, slightly different take. So why do I share all of these different definitions and uh, interpretations of concentration? Again, it's to just give you a sense of the spectrum of what we're talking about and to point you back to your own experience. What is your experience of concentration? It might resonate with one of these definitions more or less. And so if it doesn't resonate with a particular definition or even a particular teacher, whether it's me or another teacher, that's talking about this topic, don't give up your own wisdom. Stay with what your experience is of the felt sense of concentration. Because there are a huge array of definitions and the way that it's talked about, even by the Buddha, it's a spectral word. It doesn't have a single definition. And it's talked about in different contexts. And just to mention that um, if you want um, 
to go much more in depth into the theory of this, there's a wonderful book that's called The Experience of Samadhi. So you can read all about the different um, back and forth debates, and this has been going on for thousands of years. <laughs> so just to also bring that into the room, that this is a debate that is still active today. You'll hear Burmese meditation masters arguing with the Thai forest masters, arguing with, you know, how the Tibetans view it, and it just goes around and around and around. But when you look at a lot of the argument, often it gets down to this sense of real fine details of these different states. It's, it's like the old expression of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? It gets down to this level of nuance. But there's not disagreement about the importance of developing concentration. There's universal agreement on the importance of developing concentration. And I'll talk a little bit about that and how you can do that, because this is the practical piece of it that I want to get to. So this um, July, I had the good fortune of spending a week uh, with one of my main teachers, actually two of my main teachers, uh, Kamala and uh, Joseph Goldstein. And their way of teaching these days, I think, is extremely instructive. And I want to draw in some of how they were uh, presenting the practice because the way that it was being presented was developing a natural state of concentration that was arising without a lot of effort. And so I want to describe what that process was. And then I'm going to unpack it a little bit. And like I said, I'm going to end by opening it up to questions so that you can uh, have time to reflect and comment and we can really learn from one another. So in this retreat, this was out at Spirit Rock, uh, what Joseph did was he picked one sentence from the Buddha's discourses. One sentence. I mean, there are volumes, you know, and he picked one sentence out of all of these volumes, and he used that for the entirety of the retreat. So I'll give you the one sentence, and then I'll unpack it a little bit in terms of how you practice this. How do you start to cultivate concentration? So this was the sentence. When one does not cling, one is not agitated. When one is not agitated, one personally attains nibbana. That's it. I mean, you know, you kind of look and you say, well, what, there's, there can't be that much in that sentence. I mean, how could that possibly take up a nine-day retreat? There's no way that could take up a nine-day retreat, right? Well, it, it had my interest. Hopefully it has your interest, right? Just how can that one sentence? So this is the part that I want to unpack. So within the Buddha's teachings, you can always look at it through two lenses. You can look at it as practice instructions, that which you can actually take and start to use as reflection or put into practice, or you can look at it as sort of a description of what you might encounter. It's kind of interesting. You're reading these suttas and you go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I might, I might see that. That hasn't happened in my practice, but okay. And so there's these two different ways of looking at what is described. And so what Joseph was doing was he was emphasizing this as a practice instruction. How do you operationalize this sentence and put it into practice? And the way that he framed this and the way that he talked about it, I think, is so instructive, particularly in regards to developing concentration. So the very first thing he said, the very first step is to start with mindfulness. It always begins with mindfulness. So if you're ever in doubt or if you have questions, just see if you're mindful. 
That's the first thing. So just start. Is there a presence of mind? Is there awareness? Right? And so when you're starting with mindfulness, what you're doing is you're connecting with the experience. And you're really there. You're really connected. Right? So you're meeting the experience. And when you're really with the experience and you're meeting it, isn't that what I was describing earlier as the mind gathers, you're putting it together? That's the literal definition of samadhi, to put together. That's what we're doing in mindfulness. Concentration is inherent in mindfulness. Because as we are with our experience, we're gathering the mind to meet the experience. So the second part is once the mind is mindful of what's happening, and it's continuously mindful. You're just mindful moment to moment. Then you start to just allow the mind to start to key into the flow of experience, right? And so I'll give you a very practical example. We can do this right now. If you just take your hand, and you can kind of raise it like this, right? And just move your hand. So just, if it's all right, you know, with your body, if you if you want to move a foot instead of an arm, you can do that too. But just move your hand. And as you move your hand, just see if you can be with the flow of experience in the moving hand. So not the concept of your hand moving through space, but just all of the changing sensations, right? And we don't have to conceptualize this. We can just be there with this flow of experience. And notice how little effort it takes. It doesn't take a real rigid clamping down. It's just a tuning into and a paying attention with a steadiness of mind. That's right there with the experience. And it's not as though I'm kind of doing this and I'm falling forward, okay, and my hand's going to move here and then it's going to move here. I'm just with this easy flow. And so the body is a wonderful way to start to key into this flow of experience. Because as I said before, we're embodied beings. So we are always tethered to this object that we can tune into and we can drop into the flow of experience in a non-conceptual way. This is the direct intuitive experience of what's happening. So this is the second step. You just drop into the flow of experience and you notice that it changes, right? And just to mention uh, a little uh, footnote here because often the body can be quite painful, right? So when I talk about dropping into the body and the flow of experience, you also need to use discernment, which is the way that you move your body or the way that you experience your body doesn't have to look like anybody else. So often, if you go on retreat, you will see there's sort of like this collective mindset of how one should be practicing, right? It should look like this, it should be that, the this, rather than coming back to what you know is right for your own body. And I say this just because I have a lot of chronic pain. So I work with it. It's a very active part of my own practice. And so part of my own growth and development has been to learn the wisdom of my body and to stay with that direct experience in a way that is skillful, where I'm not overriding the feedback I'm getting from my body. and I'm not depleting it. I'm not drawing the energy down. So I just want to bring that in. Um, so once you're with the body in whatever way feels most supportive for you, you're with that flow of experience, the next step is just to check the state of your mind. How is your mind relating to that experience? And this is the really interesting inquiry. Because if you're with the flow of experience, 
just like the hand moving through space. And you're just aware not of this is my hand and my arm, but just tracking that moment-to-moment sensation, then what is there for the mind to cling to? It's just sensation. They're just happening moment-to-moment. And you can start to know this directly from the inside. You can know and experience the mind that is not clinging. It's not clinging to a concept. It's actually resting in the flow of experience. So this is the practice instruction. So if I go back to that sentence, when one does not cling, one is not agitated. So with the mindfulness, with being with the flow of experience, you notice naturally how the mind doesn't fixate. It doesn't cling. So then the last part, this agitation, right? The mind that doesn't cling is not agitated. When you notice that there's nothing for the mind to fix on, to hold on to, then there's nothing for the mind to get agitated to in relationship to that because there's nothing there. There's nothing to cling to. It's just a flow of experience. So the relationship to that flow of experience, how can we worry about it? It's constantly changing. It's just a flow that we're tuning into. And so the mind will naturally start to settle and become less agitated because when we fix on a concept, when we hold something as this is how it should be or this is a reality or this should not change, notice how we can start to worry about what if it does change? What if it did change? Now what do I do? So this is how we start to get to a subtler level. And that's how we start to feel into this sense of ease. So in the guided meditation tonight, when I was having you actually bring the attention at the very end to this felt sense of ease or peace or tranquility or contentment or joy, anything that you can find in your state, what you're doing is you're tuning into that sense of non-agitation. And then as the cliffhanger, I'll leave it for you to explore that last part of the instruction, which is when one is not agitated, one personally attains nibbana. But this is part of what I really wanted to emphasize around how do we start to really practice concentration in a way that is not the clamping down, the rigid, the sense of efforting, of striving, of needing to get concentrated. It's actually just a natural outcome of being mindful, being there, tuning into the flow of experience, noticing how the mind is not fixed when it's aware of the flow of experience, and then noticing how that underlying sense of angst and worry isn't there. It actually isn't there when the mind is receptive on that level. And to me, This is one of the most powerful ways of starting to investigate concentration in an organic way, in a way that isn't, I need to develop a rarefied state that requires all these special conditions where I'm secluded and there's no noise and there's no bus outside and there's no chirping of a smoke alarm, all those different things that we think that we need in order to develop concentration. So the last part that I just want to mention is to really get to what's the point? (laughs) Why do we want to develop concentration? So if that line from the Buddha uh, where he talks about when the mind is not agitated, it 
personally attains nibbana, if that's not enough incentive, because we may think that that's a far off state, something that is way beyond our capabilities in this life, then what is another reason to practice or develop concentration? Well, there's another aspect that the Buddha talks about that's really important, which he talks about the development of concentration as understanding directly gladness and joy. So that's pretty interesting because the Buddha often talks about suffering, right? So we hear about the Four Noble Truths, about, you know, the Buddha says, I teach only one thing. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And it's interesting because that's really two things, but he says, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering, right? But that's a koan. I'll leave you to investigate that one. But what he's talking about in most of the teachings is how do you overcome lamentation, sorrow, grief, aging, uh, death, uh, all of these kind of states that we go, oh boy, that doesn't sound all that wonderful. But here, in the development of concentration, he's pointing to gladness and joy. And so when I hear this, this is really refreshing to me. Because it tells me that this is part of the practice. It tells me that gladness and joy are important to the development of your own practice. And there's a number, I won't go through all the references, where he talks about abiding in the joy and the gladness of a concentrated mind. And it's often talked about as the antidote to getting caught up into thinking that happiness is out there in the world somewhere. We start to recognize that happiness is in our own direct experience, in our own being, and it's accessible. And all we need to do is start to develop this quality and it naturally arises. It's like a spring that nourishes us, this gladness and joy. The other reason that I would, uh, this is my reason, not the Buddhist reason, that I would, um, or I often talk about the development of concentration is because if you look at the state of our world right now, right? If we look at how uh, we have so much activity that occupies our life, we have the constant intrusion of technology into what we're doing, right? Whether it's email, phone calls, all these different forms that kind of come into our life and it becomes more difficult to find that place of inner solitude, right? So as lay practitioners, we can never have too much concentration. That's that's the benefit. We can't overdevelop concentration. If you read some of the suttas, the Buddha will say, whoa, okay, you know, for those monks and nuns that are really into concentration, don't go too far. But as lay practitioners, we can't go far enough because our world is constantly creating our, uh, or is causing our attention to be dispersed, to be out, to not be gathered and collected. So this is another reason to point to developing concentration. And then the last thing that I'll leave you with is uh, actually a wonderful um, uh, analogy uh, that I got from uh, a dear friend uh, who was a anagarika, which basically means he took on, uh, he was wearing white and took on a certain number of precepts, uh, but didn't fully ordain. And his main teacher was Ajahn Suchito, who was a wonderful teacher. And the way that um, he learned this from his teacher, I think, is a wonderful way of thinking about it. He said, you can think about the practice of 
wisdom or vipassana or insight on the one side and the development of concentration on the other. And how do these two work together? Well, they're not distinct. They actually are both necessary. And the way to think about it is to think about it as though you have a knife. And so the knife is used to chop vegetables, right? So you take the knife and you chop vegetables and you cut different things with it. It has a purpose. It has a use. But if you only chop vegetables or, you know, use it to uh, to cut, then it's going to dull. It's going to lose the sharpness of the edge. So then you have to sharpen the knife. You have to actually create that strength of the blade. That's concentration. Concentration is the sharpening of the blade. But if you only sharpen the knife and never use it for anything, what good is a sharp knife if you never use it? So I think this is a wonderful way of starting to understand how they are both necessary. And that the development of concentration is like the sharpening of the knife that allows us then when we practice that vipassana, that insight, when we open to our own intuitive wisdom, it's a little bit more clear. It's a little bit more precise because we've taken that time to develop concentration. So the last thing that I will end with is just a quote from Ajahn Chah because I loved Ajahn Chah because he had a directness in the way that he talked about his experience. He just got to the point. And this is what he has to say about concentration, or one way he talked about it in developing it. He said, concentration is developing the trained mind. The trained mind will bring many more blessings than an untrained mind. The Buddha and all of the noble disciples all started out the same as we did with untrained minds. So thank you for your kind attention. And please take what was useful and leave the rest. So I'd like to open it up just for comments, reflections, uh, questions. And this is really a time for us to benefit from being in community together. And it's a rare gift. It's one of the precious gifts. So, Yes. Yeah. Um, before I start, though, uh, can I just ask you, um, what makes you ask? Okay. So you have an experience of pain. Yeah. Yeah. So it's coming from that direct question of how do I work with this? Right. So this is really important because I want to honor your own intuitive wisdom, which is you know your experience. So the way that I've worked with it, and I just, you know, invite you to kind of explore and see if it's helpful. The experience of pain um, tends to be um, all-consuming, which is that the mind will naturally gravitate towards the pain. It's almost like it's got a gravitational field where the attention gets pulled to it, right? What's interesting about it is that in any other context, actually having the mind come back to one particular object would be wonderful because it would develop concentration. But with pain, it's not the case because being with pain continuously is exhausting. Exhausting, yes. And so actually Suzuki Roshi, a very famous Zen master, described pain is so tedious. That was his phrase for it, where he said, experience of pain is tedious. And so... 
the first thing is to just recognize that the mind will get drawn towards pain, that that's its tendency. And so what you want to try to do is find a way to relate to your experience differently. And so the experience of how you're relating to pain, you can take multiple different ways of doing this. One, you can actually check and see, do I have an idea about how I think my body should be in this moment? Maybe I'm sitting in a particular way or I'm walking or I'm doing something that I know is not helpful for my body. But I'm doing it because I feel a sense of I need to conform to what everyone else is doing. So I'm overriding the natural feedback. So just check, and that's the first thing. And often I found in my own practice that I will do that. I will sometimes override what I know my own body needs. And when I notice that, then I can make the adjustments. I can change my posture. I can lie down. I can actually create more ease in the body. So that's the first thing. But then as we know, finding ease in the body is not always possible. Right, So we can't always adjust the body to remove the pain, particularly when it's chronic pain. So then the question is, how do we relate to the chronic pain? And in this area, the piece of uh, in my own practice that I found to be so helpful is starting to look at what's my attitude? How am I relating to the experience of chronic pain? And in particular, starting to pick apart three distinct areas. What are my thoughts about this chronic pain? What are my feelings or emotions about the chronic pain, which often can be sadness or a sense of maybe disappointment? And then what are the direct sensations of the pain itself? And often what I found in my experience is that those three get conflated. The thoughts, the emotions or the feelings, and the sensations are all bundled together so it makes the pain that much larger, that much more unbearable. And so just seeing if you can't soften the body, can you soften the relationship to the chronic pain? And this is an art. You have There are many ways to start to try to do this, but the biggest thing is a sense of self-compassion, which is to really understand that this is my felt experience. So in, in the meditation, I gave you where you put the hand on the heart center and you really receive it and you feel it and just see if you can take that in. And so with self-compassion, recognizing that pain is uncomfortable. It's part of the human experience. And can I recognize this as an aspect of difficulty? Then the question is, it's difficult, but is there something that can help me to develop my own wisdom? my own way of learning and relating to this pain. And so that's when we start to transmute or use our experience in a different way. And it takes a lot of strength of heart, patience, and self-compassion. But the biggest piece is teasing apart those different, I found in my own practice, the thoughts, the feelings, and the emotions, and the sensations, and recognizing that they're not always there, and then resting when you need to rest. I mean, so there's, and there's a lot more that could be said about it, but I hope something in there is helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you a, a 
just a clarifying question. So um, when you say that it, you're not sure if it's mindful, is your experience that you hear the bird, let's say, the sound, and then there's just that moment of cognition where it says bird. It's like it's just right there with the experience. Or is it more, oh, that's a blue jay, and it's probably out in a tree, and it's sitting up, you know, it probably sounds like it's maybe three blocks away, maybe two, but I'm not sure. I'm just trying to clarify which of those, because they're both valid experiences. Yeah. So actually, the answer to your question is in the response you just gave me, which is you said that you struggle, right? So the minute that there's a struggle, that's a cue. That's like a little mindfulness bell to go, wait a minute, why am I struggling? What is the tug here? And so just to key into that struggle and notice if there's an expectation about what you think should be happening. Like there's almost, I should be with the breath or I shouldn't be with the bird or I should be with the bird and not with the breath. And that, as soon as that happens, notice what the natural arising is. It's doubt. It's confusion in the mind. Wait, well, it should be this or it shouldn't be that or it should be this or it shouldn't be that. So check the struggle and, and actually look at the struggle itself and then see if you can find what would be the most easeful approach. So it might just be, oh, there's a bird. Now there's the breath. Now I'm back thinking about the bird. I can feel the breath again. And you're actually moving between experience without a struggle. And so when we're, and in particular with concentration, this is a little bit more what I'm kind of pointing at. It's this sense of not struggling and it's a continuity where we can just stay with whatever the experience is. Does that help? Yeah, and just noticing that that's what happens. It's like, oh, the mind wants to force an image of like, you know, wants to figure out what does this bird look like? Like the sound of this would mean that the bird should look like this. And so you can just start to become curious about, well, that's what the mind's doing. And you actually take that as your object of attention. Notice what the mind's doing. And you'll learn a lot. That's actually the growth of wisdom. Yes. Yes. So just a show of hands, how many people have an experience that's kind of like this, more or less, right? Whether it's a driving example or something else. So that's the first thing. Notice the number of hands in this room that went up. And um, the piece that um, I might offer to investigate is when the mind is concentrated. So concentration tends to be a calming factor. It tends to calm the mind. And so that's when we were talking about the non-agitation and all the rest of that. That's the natural output of concentration is calming. So what often happens is when we get, when well, I shouldn't say when we get, when concentration arises, that the concentra- the concentration is there, but then the energy wanes a little bit. It's almost as though we get a little bit tired or sleepy. It's not stabilized. That state of mind isn't stable enough. And so then what happens is once we drift a little bit, then the mind is open to all those different hindrances that I talked about. It's like they just sneak in and all of a sudden we're replaying an argument that we had or we are, you know, toppling forward into what we're expecting. Uh, you need to do at work, the checklist and all of that. We're actually no longer in the moment with the flow of the experience because 
that the we've gotten almost too calm. It's like we've slipped into the hindrance of that kind of sloth and torpor, which is the exaggerated state. But the the state that's right below concentration is what uh, my teacher often talks about as more or less mindful. It's like, yeah, we're close to being mindful. We're close to having that stability of mind, but we're not really. We're like a little bit not fully there. And so that's often that experience where all of a sudden, you know, it's like, whoa, okay, what happened? It's because that stability of mind drifted a little bit and it lost some of the energy. There wasn't enough energy in the system to keep the concentration at that level. All of a sudden, something snuck in. Yes. Yes. So in that experience, um, what's your interest level in your route that you're driving? Is this a is this a route that you're like, I do this every day, I know this, I've been here, I know that's the store, I know this is the street, I know there's a stop sign three blocks down. So this is this is where that that energizing factor of interest really comes in. Because the minute we think we know something, we're no longer interested. And when we're no longer interested, then that power of the mind starts to wane and concentration can't stay established. So that's something to play with. Just see what's your interest. Are you really kind of with this route that you're driving? Or is it just sort of like, oh, this is a routine? This is, you know, because that's my experience. That's the reason why I'm saying it. My experience is when I drive a certain way and I know it, I'm just sort of like, oh, I know this. I, I can have that experience of like, how did I get here? I wasn't actually mindful. I wasn't actually concentrated in that way. So hopefully that's that helped. Uh, maybe just one last question. Yes. Okay, so uh, you'll have to define a term for me. You said passage meditation? Ah. Yes. No, actually, yes. Thank you for clarifying that, the passage meditation. Um, yeah, I, I often refer to that as um, sutta reflection, but it's a, yeah, so that helps me understand. Um, the Buddha talked about this as a powerful mechanism. So, you can develop concentration many ways. There are many practices. Uh, one of them is actually um, sutta reflection. So doing reflections on passages, but doing it not in a way where you're spinning conceptually. It's like you just bring in the, the phrase or the passage like what I was doing tonight, and then it's like it drops in and then you let it go, and that becomes your practice. And then you reflect on you know that and you, and you drop it and let it go and just have your experience. That actually can be a powerful form of developing concentration. The trap of it is just to check, and it doesn't sound like this is your experience, but in my own experience, I can get into what I think about of uh, kind of dharma rumination, or like uh, thinking about all of the Buddha's teachings. It's like I'm, I'm spinning my wheels, and what I'm doing is I'm just thinking. I'm not actually meditating. I'm lost in this kind of thought storm and I'm not, and I think that I'm actually meditating because I'm like, oh, this is good. I'm thinking about, you know, all these different teachings and I'm thinking about the talk that I just heard, but I'm not actually practicing. I'm not taking it as practice instructions where I reflect on it and then I let it go. Does that help? Is there more to the question? Trust your own experience. And I would say if you find it useful and helpful, keep doing it.
If you find your mind getting lost in thought and rumination, maybe switch to another practice for a while, and then you can come back to it. So thank you. Um, I will stay after if there's any questions. Uh, And for anyone else uh, that's staying after, um, just to enjoy the benefit of being in community. So I wish you a wonderful week. Thank you for your kind attention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.